Welcome to RC Plane Lab. I'm Ron. I'm Tom. So today we're going to answer some listener questions. Yeah, it's been a while since we've uh, addressed the public <laughs> and their questions of us. <laughs> an odd way of putting it, but you are correct. Um, yeah. So we've got a few of them here. Yeah, we've got to catch up. Um, that we need to get caught back up on. Uh, first off, I wanted to give you guys an update on Starlink. Now, I know uh, after I talked about ordering it the last time, I had a, a few people reach out. And he's so excited. I am Still. Like, I am actually so excited. So we are we are switched over completely, 100% to Starlink Internet. I have canceled my other service. Um, Bold move. Yeah, it was actually kind of scary. It was a lot more <laughs> scary to do that than I expected it to be. Like when I was calling and, and making that, you know, the, the final come take my equipment down thing, I was wondering if I was making a, a, Huge a mistake. mistake. Uh, we'll see as of now. But so far. Um, our download speeds have been amazing compared to what we had before. Our downtime has been less than what we had before. Um, so I, I, I can't say that we're missing yeah. anything compared to what we had before. Um, yeah. The highest download that I've gotten so far has been 316 meg connection, which for living out in the country, that is uh, <laughs> unheard of. Um, the highest I'd ever seen before was 12. And oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not joking. And the last speed test I ran before I got rid of all of our old equipment was 0.98 down with 150 millisecond ping. So not very good at all. The ping on this, like with Starlink, has been literally 31 milliseconds is what I've seen the whole time. Sometimes it gets a little bit worse, but 31 is 95% of the speed tests I do. And that's good. That's good enough for me. <laughs> I mean, I, I think if you're playing games and gamers and that kind of stuff, one a little bit lower, but I mm. I don't know. I mean, that's pretty cool for... Is that related to latency? That's the same thing, yeah. Ah, okay. That's like how long it takes the, the signal to get from A to B. You have to remember, I'm old, and these numbers don't really mean that much to me. Well, <laughs> um, in a nutshell, it's better than what I had before, but Perfect. it's not without its issues. Right, um, which you made a really good point about this being a beta test. That's sort of the point, to, so, to find the weaknesses so that they can fix them before they make it available to the masses. Yeah, so I was on Reddit today, and I actually read a, a, a quick little thing on there that kind of put it into perspective. You know, I'm happy with what I have with them because it's better, like I said, than what I had. Now, if I had great internet before that never cut out, that never gave me downtime, that right. never gave me issues, I would be a little upset. Yeah, I don't know if you heard my stomach on that or not. I'm hungry. I haven't eaten I today. did. Um, but anyway, so I, I would be a little upset. However, this is them testing the systems with us users paying the price, I guess, if you want to look at it that way. But they want to try... I would think to break what they can break, yeah. to push the system to where they can push it and see what what they can get out of it. So exactly. we're the guinea pigs, and that's the part of being a beta test. And you know what? I'm okay with that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really made your life a little bit easier. It's made my life a lot easier. So, and it's almost like it's almost like I got a new TV. I know that's going to sound weird, but a year and a half ago, year and a half ago, whatever it was, two years, we bought a new TV that was 4K. Yeah. Um, 
well, I've never gotten a 4K signal on that right. before. Yeah. I started watching 4K stuff on YouTube, and it's oh, amazing. my gosh. <laughs> yeah. It's like, like I said, a, a new TV. Yeah. So it's, yeah. It, it's been good. Uh, Starlink's expensive. Uh, it was $588 out of pocket and then 99 bucks a month for the service. Um, but, you know, I guess you pay to play. So. Well, I mean, I, I don't know exactly what uh, what we pay in town for, um, you know, we we cut the cable years ago, uh, so we're streaming you know everything now too, um, and I think we pay probably over that for our internet and phone. I mean, it's all combined, you know, with whatever it is. You have a phone. Well, our wireless. I mean, oh, our our cell plan. Oh, well, I pay a lot it's more all, than that with because uh, that our, my cell phone bill is. Well, I guess as far as the breakout, over, like for for internet, you know, for the internet at home, I think it's over a hundred bucks. Really, I think so. You might want to check your plan then, because oh, I always thought okay. like you could get stuff through uh, like if you get DSL or something like that for about fifty. Uh, no, it's through AT and T. Ours is that's DSL then. Oh, okay. I mean, that's, well, anyway, unless it's wire, oh, we'll talk later. Sorry. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, um, yeah, it's been good. I'm glad to hear yours has been good, and mine's been good too. <laughs> and it's going to get better. Yeah. Um, so because of the internet that we have now and, and things are kind of getting better, and I expect they will continue to get better as sure uh, as more satellites are launched and, and put into space. And as I cut a tree down that's in the way, <laughs> um, actually, I, I might ask you to cut the tree down. But um, as we, as we kind of get things straightened out, it's going to get and 240 satellites is what they've launched in the last month, by the way. Oh, my gosh. 240 new satellites. So cluttering up the night sky. You can't see them. <laughs> as much as I want to, you can't see them once they're in final orbit. But anyway, so the, the point of me saying this is, yes, we have new internet, which should help us to move forward on some things that we want to do on the podcast, one of which is we want to have more guests. Uh, and we want you guys to be our guests. Yeah. So we have a, a page on the website now that is a, a place where you can go to sign up to be a guest. Mm-hmm. We're, if that's something you're interested in, yeah, well, we, we would encourage you to, to sign up for it. If you don't want to do it, don't do it. Well, but I mean, weird. we don't want people to be afraid to to put themselves out there and, and, oh, I and gotcha. fill that out. Like if you're if you're hesitant, don't be hesitant. We'll make it. We'll we'll try to do whatever we can to make it as comfortable for you as we can. Yeah, we'll 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 figure things out, and we're we're not there now, but we're just kind of trying to get a, a feel for what. Uh, who wants to be on, what they'd want to talk about, how we would do it even, because I haven't really looked into it. Uh, but we're just kind of trying to lay the groundwork. So if yeah. you guys want to be a guest, go to our website, rcplanelab.com, and click on the, I think the, there'll be a link up at the top that says something about be a guest. or I haven't put it up as of now, so I don't know what I'm going to actually have it say. <laughs> but um, by the time this airs, hopefully it'll be close. Oh, it'll, yeah. That'd be <laughs> weird if it's not. <laughs> um so yeah, be a guest, go sign up, and we'll we'll yeah. try to get some stuff worked out here in the next. I would say in the next few months. Um, yeah, and even though we may not have the details worked out, um, the, a good first step is to determine whether you guys are even interested in doing something like that. So yeah, have, filling out that uh, that uh, form would be the first step, and letting us know that you might be interested in that. There you go. So there you go. Well said, Tom. Yeah. Um, Thank you. What else do you want to talk about? Well, we do have that interesting battery story <laughs> that we could talk about. So I had a friend of mine who shall rename, rename, remain. You could rename this individual if you wanted to. Uh, we'll call. No, I'm not. <laughs> we shall remain nameless. 
Um, anyway, called me the other day and said, hey, I'm trying to revive a battery, a LiPo battery, um, mm, okay. that my charger is saying will not take a charge. But we've all heard that if you completely drain a LiPo battery... Um, which is bad. Which is bad. It can actually kill a battery. But Absolutely. But not necessarily. Um, your your charger will not charge a LiPo battery that is out of spec. Mm-hmm. So... Usually, let me clarify, usually um, if the voltage drops below a certain point, um, chargers are... Chargers that are designed to charge LiPo batteries are built in with certain safety measures to keep you from burning your house down. And one of those safety measures is a a low voltage uh, threshold, such that if the battery is below a certain voltage or if one cell of the battery is below a certain voltage, it will refuse to charge the battery and it will keep giving you error codes. And those error codes can be – they can be worded a lot of different ways, but the re- charger will refuse to charge the pack if the cell voltage or if the pack voltage is below a certain threshold. And that's for safety reasons. Very true. <laughs> um, so anyway, he calls me and says, hey, I'm trying to revive this battery. It was dead. Um, was it puffy? It was not puffy. Okay. According to him. I didn't see the battery. Okay. Anyway, I'm not going to tell you how he did it, but anyway, he, he worked on getting the, the voltage up to where the, the charger would charge it. Um, mm-hmm. But then he said that the, the battery, even though it was at a higher charge, like it actually had charge in the battery, that the charger wouldn't still, was saying there was an error on it and it wouldn't charge it. So I asked him, I was like, okay, how many volts are in it? It's a four cell battery. And he said it was reading like 14 point some odd volts. That's good. That's, you know, yeah. you should be charging that, no problem. Yeah. Um, and I asked him how he was doing it and, and what he was doing to, you know, bring up the voltage and all that. And he was doing it okay. However, then I asked him to read me on his charger or on his, on his little battery checker, what are the voltages for on each cell? Mm-hmm. One was like three and a half. One was three and a half, something along those lines. One was zero. Oh, and then the other one was oh, five and a, up the over difference. five and a half. Oh God! So I told him, "Get it um, out of the house." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like, seriously, like, don't even hang up the phone. Just take that outside. <laughs> yeah, because it is overcharged and it could very well not end well. Um, so yeah. cautionary tale: when you're looking at lipo batteries and trying to figure out how to revive them. Or if it's just not charging right, don't throw more voltage and amperage into it. Uh, dig deeper to make sure yeah. what you're doing is okay to be right. done. Um, I didn't hear if it ended up going up in flames. Gosh, I'm I hope assuming not. that it didn't because I didn't hear. So I, I, I kind of guessed that if it, you know, if the bad would have happened, he would have told me. Have um, you heard from him since? No, actually, maybe, I well, haven't. Mm, so maybe, maybe he's he, not talking to me anymore. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> But anyway, right. so if you're doing something like that, check each voltage or check each cell voltage yeah. so you know what you're working with. Right. Don't just go by full pack voltage. Yes. Because that could very easily yeah. not give you a, a true reading yeah, we're not, um, of your actual cells. Yeah. Ron and I both both know of several ways to to bump up the voltage of a of a Overly discharged uh, Nike, or I'm sorry, uh, lithium polymer <laughs> battery. Nike, showing your age. Wow. Um, 
we're not uh, big fans of that, and we're certainly not going to tell people how to do that because it is can be dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are ways to do it in a safe manner. Um, but yeah, you have to start with cell voltages that are at least equal across the board or close to equal across the board. And yeah. a dead cell in there uh, will certainly force another cell to um, take up the difference, so to speak. And, and in this case, the extra voltage went to one cell instead of being dispersed among the three live ones. And yeah, that could have potentially ended in a very bad uh, situation. So yeah. Um, yeah, just like Ron said, um, monitor in your individual cell voltages. And most chargers will do that. And a battery checker also uh, designed for LiPos will is capable of doing that too. You can usually cycle between each cell well, and, and that's, read each voltage. Right. And that's what, when you when you plug your balance port into it, you know, into your charger, when you're yep. charging LiPo, it checks that. Yep. And then it wouldn't charge on his charger because of the zero voltage that was coming back on one cell. Yeah. However, he was just still trying to make that uh, come up, I guess. and The overall just, voltage, yeah, that's yeah. what he was after. He was yeah. looking at the overall <laughs> voltage and not paying attention to what the actual battery itself said. Yeah. Um, you know, cell-wise said. So just yeah. be careful. Yeah. It's possible to do, if done correctly, it works. If not done correctly, it doesn't work. I mean, I don't, <laughs> there, I don't there, know how else to put yeah, it. That, that's that's yeah. pretty much it in a nutshell. So yeah, so, just be careful with tale. those lipos. Yeah, if you're if you're gonna try to bump up the voltage to to sneak past your uh, low voltage threshold on your charger, just be smart about it and monitor those cell voltages. So very hey, good. We have a new listener survey out there. I forgot about that. Yeah, new listener survey updated last week. That's right. Um, go fill it out. Yeah, yeah. Help us help you. That's all I got, pretty much. <laughs> go fill it out. I mean, that's. Let us know what you're thinking. Let us know what you want to see. Let us know what you like, what you don't yeah. like. You know, if you like me better than Tom, that's fine. Let me know. If it's you okay. like Tom better than me, you know, shut your mouth. But that's okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, that's not very nice. <laughs> no, you're right. Tell me. I have a, I have thick skin. I don't. Ron care. is very good about taking constructive constructive criticism. Me, yeah. not so much. So just give it to Ron. Regular <laughs> criticism, I handle well too because I'm married. Well, there's that. <laughs> um, Probably ought to be a good time to remind uh, our listeners how they can get a hold of us, should they want to. Uh-huh. Uh, so I'm Tom at rcplanelab.com. That's Ron. Ron, Ron at rcplanelab.com. Yeah. You can Very also easy. get a hold of us uh, through our forums uh, right there on the rcplanelab.com website. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also a contact us uh, form on that website. There's also a phone number. I can uh, never remember the number. <laughs> 818-351-9846. Leave us a voicemail or text us. Yeah, you can even text. How about that? Yeah. Okay. Anything so else we want to talk that. about? Are we good? No, I think that's uh, we can move on to the next uh, the next topic, which is listener emails. Listener questions. Or questions. Yeah, there we go. I will go first. Okay. Now, this guy sent an email. There's no name with it or anything, so... and Which is fine. Perfectly fine. Yep. So I obviously am not going to say a name because I don't know what it is. He says, I enjoyed the podcast because there was a lot I didn't know about servos. Good. Yeah, that's great because we just did a servo episode just for you. <laughs> that's probably why he, he just listened to it, and that's probably why he you know oh. wrote in oh, about yeah, that one. Yeah, yeah. Are you serious, Tom? 
I hope you're kidding. Oh, man. Um, Anyway, a lot of Australians stay away from digital servos because they have a bad reaction with our 910 megahertz system, like Crossfire or Dragon Link. Um, I'm not familiar with either of those. I did like a very quick uh, impromptu Google search because I was unfamiliar with both of those terms as well. Uh, Crossfire, Dragon Link. They they seem to be a a long range uh, radio control link system. Um, I was not aware that uh, that that was a thing. Honestly, uh, I think it's more to do with FPV type stuff, uh, which kind of falls kind of in the drone ish category, which is not something that Ron and I are really into. So I can't talk intelligently about it. Um, Never it would, stopped you before. <laughs> <laughs> it would be a shame, uh, honestly, if digital servos had an issue with that. And I'm not sure why a digital servo uh, would have an issue with that, whereas an analog servo wouldn't, because the servos, as you may have heard in the in the episode, they operate kind of the same way. The only real difference is the, the processing speed that's inside the servo. So not sure why a digital wouldn't work and an analog does. Um, but like I said, I'm going to pass on talking about this one because I just don't know anything about it. Yeah, my my takeaway is that sounds more like the FPV stuff that we really don't get into. Um, so if you have problems with that, I understand. Thanks for letting us know. Yeah. And at least we now have that tucked away in the back yes. of our minds yep. to where if something happens later, we will kind of remember that. Hopefully. So thank you. Ron has a better memory than I do, but... Uh, that is scary to say. But that, <laughs> but, but it is back there, and hopefully uh, if we hear of something like that again, we'll be able to maybe talk a little bit more about that. But for now, I have to pass on that one because I just don't know anything about it. So I'll go next. Okay. All right. So this one is uh, from Rob, uh, all the way from Australia. Nice. Uh, he says, hello, Ron and Tom. Uh, I'm Rob, emailing from Canberra in Australia. Uh, I've been listening to your podcast and have started watching on YouTube as well. Thank you very much. We appreciate that. Make sure you hit that subscribe button. Um, (laughs) I do appreciate your tips and tricks and have been incorporating them into my building and flying. Wonderful. That's good news. I always like to hear how we've helped folks. Makes it worthwhile, right? It does, yep. Uh, He says, uh, having dabbled my foot in the water with RC uh, aircraft off and on for most of my teenage to adult life, uh, finally taking the plunge and joined my local club. Good. Awesome. I've been flying ready-to-fly and bind-to-fly foamies in a local park, though with the access to the club, I'm in the process of building up my first nitro model. Yes. I mean, Um, good for you. Yeah. Uh, He says it's a Phoenix Scanner 40-size low-wing sport aircraft. Um, He says uh, he included – he gave us a picture uh, on his – and this is his description, his currently slightly chaotic build table. To me, that's a sign of progress. If your build table is clean, like like the table we've got up here, then that means you're not doing anything. So if your build table is chaotic oh. and, and messy, like mine, that means you're getting stuff done. So I am making a lot of progress then, <laughs> even though it doesn't feel like it. Yeah. Uh, so he says uh, he reached his first big milestone uh, today of the writing here. He says he glued the wing halves together. Nice. Uh, I'm very keen to get this thing out and running and have a few other kits I want to start on as well. Sounds like the bug has bitten him. Awesome. We all get it. Uh, most notably, a 1939 designed stick and glue old timer uh, complete with a Sato FA-40A. This is a guy after my own heart. He's got a, a Sato <laughs> FA-40 on there. It's a classic four-stroke. Um, great engine. You're going to love that thing. Now, do, do, do engines run backwards in Australia? Oh, that's a good question. No, they don't. 
he says, okay. I have listened and re-listened uh, to your episode where you talk about adjusting thrust angles. Uh, the ARF kit that uh, that he's talking about, he has he says it has no mention of the thrust angle. And as far as he can tell, the firewall and supplied engine mount are all square to the longitudinal axis of the fuselage, meaning there's no right or left or down or up thrust. Um, he says, as nothing is mentioned about thrust angles, I assume that the manufacturer just expects owners will dial in the appropriate rudder and elevator trim to counter. Partly true. Uh, so we'll get to his questions. <clears throat> Number one, is it worth thinking <laughs> about dialing in some thrust angle using the testing system you guys outlined in your podcast? And the short answer is yes. Um, you can you can either dial it in initially or build the ARF as you know as per the instructions, which is what I would recommend, yeah. and then fine tune it later using the methods we described in that pod podcast. Um, before I before I get to the other two questions, I'm just going to say, usually most ARF manufacturers have sort of um, engineered or uh, designed their airplane a certain way for certain reasons. Uh, most low-wing sport-type airplanes that I think we're getting ready to – we're talking about building here, they usually don't require a lot of right thrust or down thrust. Um, and if they do, uh, they may incorporate that in other ways. Like maybe um, did you check the angle of the vertical stab? Uh, there may be some left or right trim built into that when they built it in the jig. Uh, stab incidence, you know, the, the the angle of the stab relative to the angle of attack of the wing. The horizontal um, stab. Or excuse me, the horizontal stab. Uh, there may be incidence or up or down uh, angle built into that stab saddle also to compensate for, for right thrust or up thrust or down thrust. So, and not necessarily enough to where you could see it exactly. just by looking. And it would be very hard to measure too Yeah. Um, without an incidence meter. Um which we talked about before, also. Uh, so, so first, I would just say um, build build the ARF just the way the instructions say to, and then um, leave some leave some wiggle room uh, to adjust for the left and right uh, using those steps we outlined in that episode. Uh, so, moving on uh, for a standard glass nylon engine mount, how do you go about dialing in some thrust angle? Uh, he says, in your podcast, it sounded like it was something that could be achieved at the field without much in the way of cutting or sanding, and that's exactly right. Uh, do you do something like put washers or spacers in behind the engine mount? That's exactly how I do it. Mm -hmm. um, in my flight box, I have a little container of uh, just miscellaneous nuts and bolts and stuff I've accumulated over the years. And usually there's washers in there. And if I need to really make a change at the field, like if it's so drastic I need to make a change, it's usually just a simple matter of um, either pulling the cowl off it's a, if it's a cowled-in engine or in the case of a sport plane that's just uh, mounted right on the nose, I'll pull the mount off, add a couple of washers underneath whichever side I want to add the thrust to and put everything back together and it's, it's, it really is as simple as that. There's no sanding next necessary. You don't need any glues. But, um, yeah, adding adding washers or spacers behind the engine mount is exactly how I do it. Now, would it be better to wait and put your cowl on after you have that done? So that was that was something else I was going to mention. If you think you need to, to change the thrust angle on your airplane, I would hold off on mounting the cowl permanently anyway until you've got that dialed in. Um, because let's say you mount your cowl and you've got your thrust angles all at zero, zero, meaning the engine's 
pointing straight ahead with no right, left, or up or down thrust, um, and you mount your cowl, now your spinner is going to line up with your cowl a certain way. <laughs> if you go and change the thrust angle, yep. you know, usually you're not changing the cowl angle either. So now your spinner is going to be off center. Your, your spinner is not going to line up with the nose of your cowl. So, and it could, I mean, like a little bit, one or oh, two yeah, degrees will sure. make a big difference at the end of that. Cowl. Yeah. I mean, cause sometimes, you know, on, on say a 40 size board plane that, uh, the, you know, the spinner backplate can be, you know, six inches sometimes away from the firewall. So if you just make a two degree change, you know, at the firewall, well, two degrees, six inches away from that could be, you know, a quarter of an inch, maybe even. So, um, so don't mount the, the cowl permanently until after you've dialed in, um, if you even think it's necessary. My experience with ARVs, I've, I've never, I've never had to change the thrust angle from what was built in from the factory. Yeah. Uh, They've always flown, um, pretty good uh, with the with the way stuff was was designed so but yeah that's exactly how you do it spacers behind the uh, behind the uh, the uh, mount mm-hmm. uh, between the mount and the firewall uh, and then finally his third question uh, could the same effect be done by dialing in some rudder and elevator using the push rods uh, which was which would also allow the trims to stay uh, centered he says does that do something like introduce different reactions at different speeds? Yes, that's exactly what it does. If you change if you change the trim, let's say let's say you want to add a little bit of right thrust. So you dial in a little bit of right rudder to make it, you know, move to the right. At different speeds, you're not unless you have a unless you have some kind of cool mixing function designed in your transmitter such that maybe as you move the throttle stick forward indicating more airspeed you know you have a, a trim set up to move the rudder over a you know a a uh, a like amount yeah. unless you have something like that set up a basic 1 degree deflection of your rudder is going to have a completely different effect at landing speed than it does at wide open or even on a downward leg of a loop so that's that's really not the ideal way to um, trim right or left thrust uh, by using the push rods. The best way to do that is just like we described in that video or in that episode, um, and that's to do that through the use of thrust angles on the engine. Do you have anything? No, you said everything that I thought okay. and more. So, um, so yeah, you, 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 you hit the nail right on the head, adding some washers behind the, the firewall or behind the mount, you know, between the mount and the firewall. That's how it's done. Um, but like I said, most ARFs designed pretty good right out of the box. So it usually doesn't require much in the way, if any, uh, changing of the thrust angles. So, uh, he goes on I've never changed an ARF. Yeah. I mean, I just assemble it based on how they have it and, yeah. and go from there. Yeah. And, some, and sometimes it will be built in without even being or without you even knowing it. Yeah. Absolutely true. And you'll notice, uh, like on some RFs, you know, if you, if you, you know, proceed in the hobby and, and buy other airplanes, uh, some RFs, it, it'll be extreme. Like, uh, I think it was a, uh, a cub that I had built some time ago. Cubs have a lot. Yeah. There was a lot of right thrust. So the, so the motor, was actually mounted off center of the mm-hmm. firewall a fair amount. I'm talking like half an inch or so off of what the actual center was. And I thought I was doing something wrong until I put the cowl on. And sure enough, the spinner or the uh, the, the prop nut was centered perfectly in the opening, even though the engine was mounted, you know, half an inch off center. So um, yeah, it I can remember, be noticeable on some airplanes. I remember in Cubs especially on yeah. my first one too, it was the same way to where I actually saw before I put the motor on, I could see that it was – Oh yeah, you know, at quite an angle at that an the angle. firewall was, sure. and I, 
actually asked that question before I put it together is, you know, is this how it's supposed to be? And I was, you know, told that that is correct and not to worry about it and move on. So that is true. So Rob finishes. He says, uh, thanks in advance for your help. Greatly appreciated. Your podcast has been a great find for me and actually really useful. I love to hear that. Yeah. Uh, Given how many of the do's and don'ts of the hobby seem to be kept alive through individuals' knowledge and experience rather than in books and other media. Absolutely true. He says, all the best, Rob. Hey, Rob, thanks for contacting us. Yeah, that's what we're here for. That's right. I'm glad you enjoyed it. All right, next one. All right, so this one is from Dylan. Um, He says, hey, guys, happy one-year anniversary of the podcast. Thanks, Dylan. That's actually hard to believe. We didn't do anything for our one-year anniversary. Oh, we didn't, did we? No. We were were thinking we'd do like a special one-year anniversary. We could still do it. It'll just be late. But then it wouldn't be a one-year anniversary. Well, I'm sorry, everybody. We didn't do a, an anniversary. We'll do maybe we'll do like a one year, one month anniversary or something. No. Anyway, thanks. Appreciate it. Uh, he says, uh, yeah. I've been a very dedicated listener and have only recently caught up to the newest ones. Uh, you guys encourage me to fly again. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. I have not been recently since I've not had a flight that didn't end in using the hot glue gun. Uh, mm. Hate to hear that. I uh, flew a couple of days ago, sort of a controlled flight, and smacked the plane right into a tree. That's <laughs> that's never any fun. I've been uh, there. Mm. Uh, that's not fun. Uh, but he says, mm-hmm. it was fun up until the end, and I learned a lot. Uh, I do have some criti- critiquing to do on the remote ID episode, and we do take critiques. Um, you both mentioned, and he says, yes, you too, Ron, not just Tom. Uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's not call me out on well, this Well, he what? says, you both mentioned, and then he okay. says, yes, you two, Ron, not just Tom. Okay. Uh, that an airplane would not be able to receive a signal from an RC in time to avoid a crash. Uh, he says, realistically, a plane would see it on their screen before a crash could ever occur. I'm going to stop right there. Um so True, a, a full size aircraft. Yeah, okay. what he's what he's talking about, I'm I'm pretty sure is what he's trying. A full scale airplane being able to see or not see RC airplanes. Um, we have to assume that that airplane, that full scale airplane, is is equipped with radar um, or some other form of of TCAS or uh, other sort of collision avoidance system. Not all airplanes are equipped with that. So um, in that case, they do. Re- depend on uh, what we had talked about in that remote ID uh, episode. And really, the the idea of remote ID isn't so much to warn air traffic of the existence of, of radio control airplanes, it's so much to get um, pre-approval, so to speak, uh, to fly in that particular airspace and to make sure that the airspace that we with our RCs are flying in is authorized for that use. That's really what the what the intent of remote ID is. Yeah, I guess in in my thought, and I I guess I didn't think it all the way through. When I was thinking about how fast it takes an airplane to move from point A to point B, you know, I'm thinking like big big commercial airliners. I really wasn't thinking about a little Cessna that drives or yeah. that drives that flies at what 120 150 miles an hour. I was more thinking about a, a jumbo jet at 500 plus miles right. an hour. Right. Um, and if that's the kind of thing that they're trying to prevent, I don't necessarily think they're going to have enough time to get out of the way of somebody that's flying a, a quadcopter at, you know, 20, 30,000 feet, however high they can get up to see how the earth looks from their, you know, from their GoPro that's strapped to it. <laughs> um, that is more of what I was talking about. Okay. Um, 
with this the speeds and getting around. So yeah, you're right. Um, most airplanes that fly around here, what a couple thousand feet in the air, maybe yeah. give or give or take. So right, yeah. But if we're you know if we're sticking to the rules, we're never flying above four hundred feet anyway, right? No, with our RC airplanes. Nope. Just saying. Sticking uh, to the rules. So yeah, realistically, a plane would see it on their screen, assuming they have one, because not all of them have have that avoidance uh, technology uh, before a crash could ever occur. He says they are already monitoring other airplanes using the device, uh, so a simple update would allow people to see RCs as well. So again, uh, that airplane would have to be equipped with that with that uh, technology, um, either radar or you know TCAS or whatever collision avoidance system that they're using. Um, and I will say there are still limitations to radar. I know a little bit about that. Um, most small airplanes, and especially drones, are invisible to even some of the best radar that's out there. Well, I so, mean, what would the difference be between, like, a small airplane flying around and a bird? Right, exactly. So There's not a lot of difference. So, you know, while I, I agree with, with the uh, – with the um, the gist, uh, yeah, um, of what you're the saying. Sediment, but a lot of things have to happen for this to to occur, uh, and not the least of which is uh, having that technology on board the full scale airplane to be able to see that sort of thing. Um, so he says uh, either that is true or ATC, air traffic control, uh, the person that keeps airplanes from crashing and doing other functions, would call out an RC that would be a factor to the airplane. Again, ATCs, they only see what their radar shows them or what airplanes are squawking on their on their um, transponders. Uh, so, And since remote ID is not live, I mean, it's, it's not a, a signal that has to be given live, they're not going to know when you're flying. I mean, right? Yeah. Um, you don't have to call and, ATC and for permission. Right, and remote ID isn't – the intent isn't for them to to broadcast a – like a transponder does, a signal to ATC or a signal at least that's visible by ATC to therefore track where you're at. That's not, that's not a requirement of real ID. So, again, unless your airplane is really, really big, ATC is probably not going to see your RC airplane because it's so small, too small to be picked up by the radar – that ATC uses, and also it's not going to be transponding or using a transponder to transmit that information. Uh, so there's that. Um, he says, uh, I personally have flown with my father in a Cessna 182 and help him find airplanes that might be too close. Uh, I'm assuming you're looking at a, at a, at a screen of some kind. Uh, or if not, or even actually visually. looking, yeah. yeah. But it's going to be easier uh, to see was, a full-size airplane than it is an RC airplane. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, I was wondering if you could do a video or segment dedicated to servos. Yes, we can. <laughs> Look, a we couple did. weeks ago. <laughs> um, hope you enjoyed that one. Hope you found that one useful. Yeah. Uh, he says uh, he's been wondering what magic happens inside them. Hope we were able to explain that uh, in, a, in a manner that uh, was easy to understand. I sometimes have difficulty doing that. Um, have fun continuing the podcast. Oh, and you are coming through to the younger generations. Uh, he says, I'm 13. Keep doing what you're doing. It makes for an entertaining hour of my week. Dylan. Thanks, Dylan. Yeah, thank you very yeah, much. Thanks for uh, prompting a, a serious conversation about real ID. And let's keep in mind that this is evolving. Um, it's, in my opinion, just like I said in our real ID episode, it's going the right direction. Mm -hmm. um, and But I feel like it's, it's going to continually evolve. And I think it's really... 
like I said before, just everybody settle down about real ID. <laughs> it's really, uh, it's going to be fine. We're going to be fine. I agree. So what have you got? Uh, last one. Okay. Oh, I should probably take this one since it's my fault. <laughs> I'll read it, though. Okay. Tom, you messed up. No, I'm kidding. It doesn't say that. That's what I heard in my mind when I read it. <laughs> uh, okay, it says, uh, you mentioned Gorilla Glue, but I wasn't sure what you meant because there are at least three completely different types of Gorilla Glue, as well as different colors. Yep. For example, they have a thick CA and expanding glue in both white and brown, and I'm pretty sure they have others as well, including hot melt glue sticks. They so, do. Tom, you messed up. I did. Explain it, please. I did. So... What he's, um, I'm assuming he, no, it might be a she. There was no yeah, name. Yeah, there was no name on this one either. Um, talking about the episode where we talked about the glues that, that we like to use. And I mentioned uh, another glue that is uh, becoming, uh, I don't want to say predominant, but a lot of guys are starting to use, and that's Gorilla Glue. And specifically what I was talking about, Gorilla Glue, they, they do make several different types of glue. You're absolutely right. And uh, it's... Uh, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't specify which glue I'm talking about. And the glue I'm talking about is their standard Gorilla all-purpose. Um, it's called an all-purpose glue, and it's brown. It's the brown stuff. Uh, they also make a formula of this brown stuff that is uh, clear-ish. Um, but it's a it's an expanding kind of foam. You uh, you brush it on one part, and then you you know get the other part wet with water, and then you smash the two parts together. And that glue kind of expands a little bit to fill in voids and things like that. Um, great for sheeting wings, things, you know, like I mentioned. Um, but that's the glue I was talking about was that brown all-purpose glue. But uh, Gorilla Glue, they do put their name on a lot of different types of glue these days. They do have CAs now. Uh, they make a carpenter's, like a wood glue uh, that I don't particularly care for using because it has some kind of additive in it that keeps it rubbery. It's not your uh, plain aliphatic resin? No, it's not. It's aliphatic resin oh plus something else that's in there. Whoa. Um, I've used it uh, for for what I use it for, for the balls and stuff. Not a fan. Um, but they've also put their name on, um, oh, let's see. They put it on epoxy. They branded their own epoxy now. So, yeah, Gorilla has their name out there on lots of different types of adhesives, but specifically what I was referring to was their standard all-purpose and the brown glue is what I was talking about. So, yeah. Sorry, I apologize for not uh, making that clear. Hopefully, I didn't uh, send anybody to the hardware store to get the wrong glue. I hope that didn't happen. But if it did, I apologize. That's all I got. True. Me too. <laughs> uh, contact us. We told you all the different ways you can contact us. If you have a question, send them in. Eventually, we'll answer. We promise. Uh, sometimes it might take us a little longer than others. We've got a lot of stuff going on with the videos and stuff that uh, uh, that Ron just uh, produced and put out there. I encourage you to get on YouTube, check out our channel, and please like and subscribe. There you go. I think you hit the nail on the head. And if you <laughs> want right. to be a guest, go click on the be a guest on the website and yeah, sign fill out up that and, form. And yep. we'll we'll be in touch. Yep. Absolutely. All right. Well, until next time, I'm Ron. I'm Tom. Good night. Good night. Good night.